I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. And on this episode, Autumn, we're going to catch up. We're going to talk about nurses on bicycles, as well as the Civil War that is unfolding in the Republican Party. And we may even dive into the GameStop uh, fiasco that occurred last week on Wall Street. So stay tuned. Lots of great things coming up. Plus an interview with Sarah Posner, who has an extraordinary book called Unholy. So stay tuned. You won't want to miss it. Autumn, how are things over in the Lockett household? Well, I don't know if you know this about me, Mitch, but I played the flute for like eight years. And I feel toot, like... Toot. I, I can toot my Braggart. Feet. In fact, I can look at it sitting up on the top of my clothes right now. Like I still have it. Um, but, you know, we seem to be sort of gearing up for civil war and I'm not much for battle. I'm not a super tough gal, um, but I can maybe stand at the front and like pipe some kind of a little ditty um, on the right side of history. So that's how <laughs> things are going here. So we're going to have a picture of you with your flute and, and one of your sons, you know, the little drummer boy and yes. uh, your husband uh, waving the flag. So that's, that's going to be great. He's just going like, to wave his hair back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> sort of a, a little oh. mascot. <laughs> wow, the new Norman Rockwall uh, picture. So. <laughs> oh. Yes, uh, there seems to be a civil war of sorts a brewing. Uh, not only are, uh, is the, the rhetoric between the right and left uh, continue to escalate, but within the Republican Party, there seems to be a civil war afoot. And that is what direction the Republican Party is going to take after uh, President Trump left office. It seems as though his influence still remains. And there was a big debate this week, especially on the House side, between uh, what direction they were going to go, whether they were going to uh, somehow discipline Liz Cheney for voting against or voting for impeachment or go the way of Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, who is a conspiracy theorist uh, promoter, uh, deep, uh, deeply committed to President Trump, as well as the QAnon uh, supporters. So it's interesting to see. Um, you know, there's some really great people over on the right side of the aisle. Um, you know, Liz Cheney said that she voted her conscience. And uh, for someone to say that Liz Cheney was a traitor to conservative ideals is absolutely insane. She's got a staunch uh, record of being a conservative on, on many, many issues. And then on the Senate side, you're, you're hearing from Mitt Romney and, and even Mitch McConnell, two stalwart uh, conservatives, talking about how dangerous uh, the road that the Republican Party is heading down right now. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Uh, are they going to go the way of sensible, compassionate conservatism, or are they going to go the way of crazy town? Yeah, they keep talking about, they keep referring to the Republican Party as a really big tent. And I think sometimes the tent starts to have red and white stripes on the top of it and some clowns pouring out of it. It just... It's not the conservative party I grew up in. Right. You know, there's this wonderful uh, idea. Uh, it's called the Poplar um, uh, Paradox. And the, the paradox is this, is that for people who are attempting to, um, to, to create a large tent in an organization who are really trying to be an inclusive organization um, and, and bring a diversity of people underneath this tent. The problem is if you want to be inclusive, 
there's really only one person or set of people that you must exclude, and that's the exclusionist. Because if exclusionists are ever inside that tent, if they are ever allowed to gain a foothold, then your organization, your group, will never be able to achieve inclusiveness. And so it's called the paradox. To be inclusive, you must exclude exclusionism. And I think that's right. And I think that's where the Republican Party finds itself right now. Um, you know, which direction they are going to go. And, and I hope, I do hope with all my heart that they choose the sensible way because I do believe in a two-party system. I believe that there needs to be a conservative party, a liberal party, and checks and balances and so that uh, we can all hold each other accountable. That is what democracy is. And, and I just uh, hope and pray that the Republican Party comes to its senses and can follow a pathway forward. Yeah. Well, speaking of... Uh, finding a pathway forward, the rollout of the vaccine. Um, I don't know about you, but it seems like it's a mess. We're starting to talk to people who have gotten their first dose, waiting on their second dose. And it seems like no matter where you live in this country, it's, it's all different. People are getting different information, not understanding how to sign up. Um, can they get the vaccine in one location and then get it in another location? It just seems like an absolute mess. And you were saying off, uh, off the pod uh, a moment ago that all we need to answer this horrible, horrible pandemic and get everybody vaccinated is nurses on bicycles. Please tell me what you're talking about. Yes. Well, especially if the nurses are nuns, I feel like they could just get it done. I uh, have come quite late to the Call the Midwife Party. Uh, it's a show um, from the BBC. And I happen to have been pregnant for about the past 14 years and finally I'm not. And so I can watch the show without my mama hormones kicking in. And <laughs> in the current season that I'm on, they are fighting um, polio and tuberculosis and they just the nurses just roll up into these you know neighborhoods and they have a plan and they get these you know adults and children through the vaccination clinics they do their x-rays that they need to do for tuberculosis and then everything's fine and they just mm -hmm. see them and their their habits on their bicycles and sometimes a scooter <laughs> for the peppy ones and they just get it done um but you know i think the timeline that that was set set in you know you're in london post-world war ii not very far post because right. they're still you know diffusing live bombs and things and so there is still this this sense of um, community yeah. and that we're doing this not just for my good, but for the community good. Yeah. And so I wish I could like bottle up a little bit of that and kind of shake it over our whole country. Right. Absolutely. You know, Call of the Midwife uh, was created uh, by the BBC. Uh, Heidi Thomas is its creator, but it was based on the memoirs of Jennifer Worth, who worked with the community of St. John the Divine there in East London. And it is a remarkable book. It's uh, also a remarkable show. I commend it to everyone. But I think you're right. I mean, if we would just put nurses in charge of, uh, of this rollout, I mean, things get done when yeah. uh, nurses are in charge. So let's get everybody else out of the way and just empower the nurses to take care of this because then everybody would have a jab in the arm. Absolutely. Uh, well, you know, speaking of jabs, Wall Street took a little bit of a jab last week <laughs> um, with the uh, this crazy uh, situation that unfolded. A subgroup within the website Reddit began to buy GameStop stock 
at lower price. And when you begin to buy it like that, the stock prices begin to escalate. And by uh, after a couple of days, GameStop stock was at extremely high rates, even though the box store probably has a shelf life uh, because uh, of, of online uh, gaming. But uh, it was fascinating. And what really caused a stir was that when this group basically pay, pay, played by the rules, bought stock in, in this company, uh, raising its price and its value, then all of a sudden the power brokers who had bet against uh, GameStop's success, they bought stock that it would fail, betting against the company, then all of a sudden they were losing millions of dollars because it looked as though on paper at least the store was gaining value and traction. Well, all of this was happening, and then all of a sudden there were certain investment uh, companies that halted trading. And it was just absolutely asinine because it revealed the hypocrisy of Wall Street that if you are an individual or if you're a common person who wants to invest and manipulate the system by, again, playing by the rules, then if you begin to cause issue with some of the, the more powerful and wealthier uh, investors and companies on Wall Street, then they'll shut you down. Yeah. And it was, it was kind of scary, to be quite honest with you. Yeah, it was. And I think a lot of people who have touted how well the stock market has done and different things like that that never actually benefit from anything to do with it mm -hmm. had a lot of opinions um, about things that they knew nothing about <laughs> during the past couple <laughs> well, of Well, I, I do not plan to be an expert or understand the nuances of, of what happened last week. But one thing I am for sure about, it revealed the hypocrisy of the economic system that's mm -hmm. in place in the United States and, and, and other developing countries. Uh, or developed countries. Um, you know, when you read the Bible, especially the Gospels, Jesus was such an advocate for the poor and the commoner. Um, and he just he he just fought against systems that took advantage of the poor and the commoner. And as a good faith believer, as a Christian, I think we are called to sound out a voice and a challenge to our society that making or that, that, that calls out the hypocrisy and the corruption that we see in the systems, especially economic systems, that gives such an advantage to rich people and to rich organizations, but limits the upward mobility of the commoner. Mm -hmm. We need a more level playing field. And we've heard politicians talk about this. We've heard pastors talk about this. We've heard theologians talk about this. There's a deep need to rethink uh, some of the institutions that we have uh, as a country uh, based upon this idea of social justice. It does not mean that we should get rid of them, but they, they need to be reformed in order that there can be a level playing field for everybody on the field. Yeah, and, and that's the kind of system we should all root for as people of good faith. Absolutely. Well, next, Autumn, we know that uh, you were out this week, uh, and so I interviewed Sarah Posner, who is the author of Unholy, 
uh, trying to discover why evangelicals worship at the altar of Donald Trump. Uh, it's a wonderful book. It is very fascinating. And my conversation with Sarah was extraordinary. So I want to encourage our readers to stay tuned as I talk with Sarah Posner. Lot Carey is proud to bring you conversations with some of the best and brightest pastors coast to coast. Our new podcast, Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving, delivers wisdom from the Black church for the whole church. Find us wherever you get your podcasts or listen online at lotcary.org. That's L-O-T-T-C-A-R-E-Y dot org. We look forward to the pilgrimage with you. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us, Sarah Posner. Sarah is a reporting fellow with Hype Investigations. Her investigative reporting analysis on the religious right in Republican politics has appeared in a myriad of volumes such as Rolling Stone, The New Republic, Vice, HuffPost, The Nation, Mother Jones, New York Times, and Washington Post. She is a prolific author and a wonderful researcher. Her 2008 book, God, Prophets, Faith, Fraud, and the Republican Crusade for Value Voters, explored the unholy alliance between the Republican Party and prosperity TV evangelists. Her latest book, which we recommend highly, Unholy, Why White Evangelicals Worship at the Altar of Donald Trump, is in bookstores right now. So, Sarah, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. We are delighted that you are with us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Sarah, first of all, we just want to ask, we ask all of our guests uh, during this time of pandemic, um, how are you? How's your family? Are are, are you you feeling okay? We're all feeling okay. Thank goodness. Um, My mother got the first dose of her vaccine last week. Excellent. So that was very exciting. (laughs) Um, But yes, we've been, we've been holding up fine. Good. Well, glad. I'm glad to hear that. Well, let's just kind of jump right in. But before we jump into the book, let's begin with a little bit of background, because your journalism, your stories, your writing is very particular. Both of your books address the relationship between faith and politics, but more precisely, the alliance between the religious right and the Republican Party. So I've got to ask, why does this topic interest you and how in the world did you get started covering it? Well, why it interests me, I think a lot of people who might be listening to this podcast, it probably interests them also, because it tells us a lot about how we got to the place that we are right now in American politics and in American religion, particularly American Christianity. I got into this when I was in college back in the very long time ago, 1980s, um, and I wrote my senior thesis about the religious right, which was at the time in 1985, 1986, just at the start of being built as a political infrastructure inside Washington, D.C. And uh, although I did not immediately become a journalist after I graduated from college, I ended up going to law school and practicing law for a long time before I made the turn to journalism. This was something that interested me throughout that period anyway. I've always been very interested in politics. And uh, over that period, George W. Bush became president and the religious right saw its power grow during his presidency. Um, We saw the 
you know, the backlash of, against Bill Clinton by the religious right, the backlash against Barack Obama's presidency by the religious right. So it's just something that I've I've always had um, an intense interest in. Sure. Now, our listeners are keenly aware of the relationship between the religious right and the Republican Party. But that's been brewing for a long time now. Many of our listeners live through those dark days of the Southern Baptist takeover by fundamentalists. Now, do you think, because some of us have kind of batted this around a little bit, do you think that the takeover of the SBC uh, was the beginning of this formal relationship fusing right-wing theology with right-wing politics? I don't know that it was the beginning, but it was another symptom of what was happening at the time, uh, because it was something that happened over the same period that other other parts of evangelicalism were getting involved in Republican politics. So you had, say, the independent fundamentalist Baptists who were getting involved from the angle of uh, fighting the IRS on the um, tax exemption issue for Christian schools, mm. where they didn't want the IRS to tell them that they needed to desegregate or have non-discriminatory admissions policies. So that was one thing that was happening along the way. The Southern Baptist Convention, the takeover by the fundamentalists was happening sort of on the same track. All of this was part and parcel of the uh, evangelical alliance with the Republican Party, which was also happening while there were efforts to bring conservative Catholics into the Republican Party. Um, and so all of these things were happening simultaneously. Yeah, and and you're, it happened simultaneously. You had the takeover of the SBC, and then of course the the candidacy of Richard Nixon, and uh, certainly his uh, Southern strategy, uh, if you will. Right. Uh, and then of course you had the rise of the Moral Majority, which you talk about Ronald quite Reagan, extensively. Right. Yeah, during mm-hmm. Ronald Reagan. So, um, so a lot of this was happening at the same time. Um, you know, what what. A lot of us are trying to, to wrestle with the the idea of why this came about. Um, was this a direct reaction uh, to what was going on in the country? Was it uh, a continuation of white supremacy that this country has always been facing? What? Why do you think it has become so paramount uh, today? Well, I, you know, I think you're right. It's it, it was it was changes that were happening in the country along with the legacy of white supremacy. Um, I think about it this way, and and this is what I argue in Unholy, is that this was a reaction to it was a a, a, a racist driven racial grievance driven reaction to changes that were taking place over the course second half of this 20th century. And it wasn't just about race, right? It was about cultural dominance. It was about secularism. It was about patriarchy. So you had a lot of changes that were happening from Brown v. Board of Education to the Supreme Court decisions on school prayer and Bible reading. That was a few years later. You had the Civil Rights Act. You had the Voting Rights Act. You had school desegregation. Then you have... Uh, the women's rights movement, the feminist movement, Roe v. Wade, 
And so, you know, it's just, a, it was a progression of things. I think people like to think about it as Roe v. Wade happened and then the moral majority happened. And it was a lot more complicated than that. Jerry Falwell was very involved in pushing back against all these other changes, all these other civil rights changes. And so when you look at it through the lens that we're seeing it now, you see that this was a movement that was building against democracy, right? It started out as a movement that was against uh, democratic change, small d democratic change, which was a more pluralistic society, a society that uh, protected the civil rights and human rights of every citizen um, and treated them with dignity. You know, these were obviously aspirational things. Mm -hmm, You know, this was not something we ever actually fully achieved, but these were the aspirations of, you know, the civil rights movement and these changes that we're talking about. Right. And over time, um, what we've seen with the religious rights relationship with the Republican Party and then with Donald Trump is that this has been a a movement that has been steadily uh, walking towards uh, this opposition to not only these democratic values, but democratic institutions, and including, as we've seen more recently, the democratic institution of having free and fair elections. There are many of us uh, that have been combating uh, fundamentalism, right-wing theology, right-wing politics uh, for quite some time. I've even got the the uh, the scars to prove it, <laughs> so to speak. Um, but there, you know, it, it was kind of a you got used to that battle, that fight, that that, that issues that you could debate. Uh, you know, the, the mischaracterization by many on the right, uh, on people on the the center or left of things, and you kind of you fell into this. Uh, I hate to use this word, but this comfortable. Uh, confrontation between uh, two ideologies. And I knew how to battle the fundamentalist and the religious right at one time. But then five years ago, something happened that I think transcended the whole thing and upset the apple cart more than I could ever imagine. And that's the rise of Donald Trump. And that is what Unholy unpacks for so, so eloquently. Five years ago, candidate Donald Trump rose to the top of the Republican Party presidential ticket. At first, some right-wing evangelicals were cold on Trump, citing Mm -hmm. his crude behaviors. But something happened. As the campaign continued and it became apparent he was going to be the candidate, most of them began to embrace him. Now, why do you think that happened? It happened because they were following the base. What we saw over the course of his primary campaign was that the base, when it had a choice of Donald Trump, two PKs, Ted Cruz and Scott Walker, um, uh, other candidates who spoke their language, who were evangelical, who checked off all the litmus test boxes that the religious right always wanted, the base chose Donald Trump. And the religious right leadership really had no other choice but to go along with it. Now, why did the base choose Trump? We can unpack that a little bit more, but I think that one of the changes that we need to talk about that led to this moment was the rise of these subcultures within evangelicalism, uh, in the Pentecostal and charismatic communities um, that emphasize the prosperity gospel, Um, direct revelation, you know, people who claim to be prophets with direct revelation from God, this whole kind of culture around this 
televangelism. I think that in terms of leadership, that was the predominant leadership that backed Trump early on, you know, like his his spiritual advisor, Paula White. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the political leadership of the of the religious right, the Ralph Reeds and the Tony Perkins came on later. But it was because the base liked Trump, the base liked Trump because his, you know, his xenophobic, racist appeals appealed to them. Right. And the base also liked Trump because part of the base was hearing from these televangelists and these self-described prophets and these um these figures in the new apostolic reformation who believe that, you know, they, you know, that they're hearing from God and they heard from God that Trump is going to be president and that he's the King Cyrus of our time. And sometimes God chooses an unlikely leader to lead a country, to lead a nation at a very critical point in its history. And so you had those things sort of collide together, reach. So reaching the point where, the leadership had no choice in a way. I mean, obviously they had a choice, but they probably felt like they had no other choice uh, because the base had gone in the direction of Trump. And then everybody kind of got on board with this idea that God had chosen him because sometimes God chooses somebody unlikely. And look at Donald Trump, who could be more a more unlikely leader for the Christian nation, which, you know, the fact that he rose to the top is proof that God, you know, sometimes picks an unlikely leader. Yeah. And I guess that was probably the most confusing part of the last five years for those who are looking on the outside in to the support of evangelicals or right-wing uh, theologians and, and pastors to the presidency of Donald Trump, was that it, at one time it seemed to be a party that just always talked about uh, morals and values. It was the moral and values culture. And, and of course, we all recognize it was their understanding and their perspective of morals and values. But then all of a sudden, it seems as though they just threw all that out the door and were more concerned about gaining power, gaining control, uh, and it became even uh, you know more prevalent that you had these uh, bigoted ideas, these bigoted policies that were put in place. You uh, mischaracterized, villainized people of color, uh, tried to legitimize white supremacists and fascists. It was just, I mean, it just seemed to happen overnight. And that's what you, you do such a, a great job in your book, kind of outlining uh, or outlining how that took place in this worship of Trump. Yes. And, you know, I think it's important to also look at it through the lens of history, that the history of the religious right is also the history of what was at the time called the new right, the movement post Watergate that sought to revitalize a conservative movement in a more right-wing populist vein um, to kind of reject the National Review country club kind of uh, uh, conservative for a more flyover America, middle-class, white, Christian, uh, populist movement. And when you look at the history of the New Right, and I do this in Unholy, there, um, you know, it was driven a great deal by racism and a backlash to the civil rights movement. Uh, And there were figures, leading figures in the New Right, who later became um, heroes to what we now call the alt-right. So the sort of white supremacist right. 
Um, and this was the movement that specifically sought to bring in evangelicals in this coalition, this right-wing coalition that would remake the Republican Party. And you could make the argument that they never really sort of achieved the full potential of this vision until Donald Trump came along, right? Sort of bringing the the kind of racist, white supremacist right together with the Christian right. Mm -hmm. um, I think over the period from Reagan to Bush, what you saw was, you know, an effort, um, sort of a, an episodic effort, a whack-a-mole kind of effort to get rid of the more extreme people, right? And what we're seeing now, for example, with Marjorie Taylor Greene from the Congresswoman from Georgia, who's just you know, really out there with the conspiracy theories and the anti-Semitism and so so forth, um, is the Republican Party doesn't know what to do with her. Right. Yeah, sure. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, because they're realizing that, you know, the base that they've enabled through the period of Trump wants the, this kind of person to be representing them. Yeah. Um, so I think that the the moralizing was kind of a cover for their anti-democratic values, anti small d democratic mm, sure, values sure, yeah. and once trump kind of blew the lid off of that right so it's like okay now that doesn't matter anymore we found a leader who would champion the white christian nation without us even really having to resort to all of that moralizing we can just frame it as as this imperative that we save Christian America from the social justice warriors mm -hmm. or the, um, you know, Antifa or the socialists or all of the, the bogeyman that the right, right is currently trying to paint um, anybody who's to their left. What was fascinating in the book, and I'm going to read a section here uh, in just a second, that somehow Trump was able to transcend mere politics, to tap into this this really spiritual connection with his base. And in the book you write, in Trump, the Christian right sees more than a politician who delivers promises. They see a savior from the excesses of liberalism. Now, that is a powerful statement. I've got two questions regarding that, that one sentence. Okay. First, what do you mean when the Christian right sees Trump as a quote-unquote savior and second, has the Christian right so closely associated now liberalism with their definition of sin that oftentimes they see that as intertwined, that if you're a liberal, you're a sinner? So let's talk about the Savior part first, because okay. that's fascinating. Right. So um, they, and I think that this was this was definitely accelerated by the Supreme Court's uh, decision in Obergefell in 2015, legalizing same-sex marriage. Um, if you look at all of this from the arc, from Brown, v. Board of Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 through Obergefell in 2015, so this it's a it's a you know 50-year arc there, 60-year arc, <laughs> um, and over that period. The, the religious right persistently sees itself as being under threat. It sees itself as being under threat to the Christian schools, to Bob Jones University after school desegregation. They see themselves as, they paint themselves as being, the family is under threat 
from Roe v. Wade. The family is under threat by, you know, uh, the feminist movement. The family is the the church and the family structure is under threat by getting rid of prayer in public schools. And then, you know, our religious freedom is under threat by this, that, and the other thing. The Christian nation needs to be restored. And the final nail is Obergefell, you know, from their point of view. And they, they liken it to, to the Bob Jones university case and say, This, you know, this means the government's going to come after us if we, you know, we take our tax exemptions away, Christians are going to be persecuted. I mean, all of this is overblown hyperbole, obviously, but this is the hyperbole that they get the base mobilized around. And so Trump comes along, and even though he himself is a libertine, and he himself has never indicated that he, you know, until he entered politics, that he opposes abortion or same-sex marriage or uh, equality for LGBTQ people, um, he signals to them that he wants to restore this America that's been lost. He signals to them that he's willing to do anything. Like, he doesn't care about the democratic process. He doesn't care about bipartisanship. He doesn't care about any kind of collaboration. He's willing to just walk roughshod over everything. And he's even willing to use violence. I think that, like, now we see the culmination of that. But in real time, you know, it was evident that he relished violence and he was willing to uh, egg his supporters on to engage in it. Mm So they saw in him somebody who was really willing to go to the mat in their view for him, and that America, in their view, was on the brink of being lost, and he was a strong enough man to come and save it. Well, you, you mentioned the, the, the capital insurrection, and one thing that was startling to me as a Christian was to see uh, pictures uh, that said Jesus saves, and the picture was of Trump, and it seemed as though they were, you know, they were saying that, you know, he is he is somehow God's deliverer now, yes. and has supplanted yes. Jesus as a, as that deliverer. Yes, uh, I mean, some of the signs said Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president, mm-hmm. but even just making a sign like that, sort of conflating the idea that your president, you know, who your president is can be uttered in the same breath as who your savior is, mm-hmm. um, is, is very indicative of how they have elevated, many of them have elevated him to this sort of, um, you know, this Messiah status. Sure. And the second part of my question had to do with uh, this kind of equating liberalism to sinners. You know, one of the things that I've been trying to articulate for years and years has been, you know, when I look at my brothers and sisters who are more conservative than I, who, you know, who reside in the Republican Party, I never question their faith. I question some of their theology and some of their okay. politics, but I, I don't dissuade their genuine faith in the person of Jesus or the God that they worship. But on the opposite side, when people call me a liberal, so it's like that's the worst thing you can call somebody if you're on the right, right is a liberal, that I've heard numerous times, as well as a lot of my colleagues have heard, you can't be a Christian and a liberal, or you can't be a Christian and a Democrat. Is that the norm in your research from the religious right, or do you still th- hold out hope that they may disagree with some of the more progressive ideas that we have, both in theology and politics. But 
they don't see us as the devil incarnate, so to speak. Well, I mean, I think that the, uh, the rhetoric that I have observed over the past five years is really around the bend on this. Mm -hmm. I mean, this has been this kind of demonization of liberalism and of their fellow Christians who are liberals. You know, this goes back a long ways. I mean, sure. you know, if, I don't know how old some of your listeners might be. <laughs> right, if they right, remember right. somebody like Carl McIntyre or Billy James Hargis, mm -hmm. you know, these kinds of demagogues have been with us for a while. Um, but I think now uh, there is more of an organized political movement that has a very, in the religious right, that has a very us and them kind of character to it. Uh, where by if you're with us, you're with us, but if you're against us, you're a traitor. I mean, right, yeah. I've seen the language really go that far. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about um, after the 10 Republicans in Congress voted with the Democrats on the one article of impeachment for the second impeachment of Trump. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, Franklin Graham on his Facebook page compared them to Judas. I saw that, and yeah. asked what were the 30 pieces of silver that Nancy Pelosi offered them. I mean, so, you know, th so this idea of who's in the right and who's in the wrong transcends religion, it transcends right. politics, it transcends partisanship, right? So, like, it doesn't matter if those Republicans were Christian or evangelical or anything, the f or Republican. The fact that they voted against Donald Trump made them a Judas. Yeah. And that's that's kind of where a lot of the rhetoric is right now. Yeah. And those those 10 Republicans aren't even liberal. Right, I know. That's they, a, were, <laughs> they were conservatives who wanted exactly. to hold Trump, Donald Trump yeah, accountable. It's, it's fascinating <laughs> since uh, President Trump has left office now um, of what is happening in the Republican Party, what's happening in you know this, this conservative family, that there's a lot of infighting going on right now. And who's going to control mm -hmm. the future of of that movement. Well, I've got one question before we get to our final question. And the question centers on just kind of your experience in writing the book. Uh, again, Unholy is a very well-researched book. You did an excellent job outlining this argument. Uh, it's it's fact-based. I highly recommend it to all of our listeners uh, today uh, to go to Amazon or wherever you pick up uh, your, your, your books to read or listen to, uh, buy it today. Um, but it's so well-researched. I'm certain that you learned a lot in the process, but you did even more than that. You had encounters with some of these individuals and with these churches. During your research and compiling of uh, the book, what surprised you? I think that even though in real time you could see this gathering, you know, in real time I'm talking over the course of the 2016 campaign, you could see this gathering um, veneration, adoration, worship of Donald Trump. What surprised me, I think, was how it not it didn't slacken over the course of his presidency, over his scandalous presidency. It intensified. Right. And, um, you know, I finished the book around the time that the first impeachment was getting underway. And 
his followers, his loyalists, saw the impeachment as not a, a chance for them to evaluate whether he had done anything wrong. It was just taken as a witch hunt hoax uh, uh, that was perpetrated by his enemies, the, the Democratic Party. And um, it was then that I realized that there wasn't anything that was going to erode their um, their worship of him, really. Uh, you know, as I was writing the book, I kept wondering whether there was going to be something that was going to finally make them say, right, this sure. is it. And that never came. It hasn't even come after the insurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, after the insurrection, their reaction is either um, – he did not incite it. It didn't happen. It was, you know, Antifa or Black Lives Matter protesters right. who were posing as as MAGA supporters. So there's just this sort of disinformation bubble that they're living in. And I'm not really sure how you break that. It, it goes beyond uh, a dispute over policy or ideas or theology. This is we're talking about they're living on a different reality plane. Right. You know, we all scoffed when he uh, uttered those famous words. Now I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and not be convicted of it. His base wouldn't lose any support from his base. I think he's right. Yes. <laughs> I think he's 100 percent right. Uh, because after you know four years of, of all of this uh, and certainly culminated on January the 6th, if there was anything you think uh, that would turn his supporters against him, it would be an attempt to overthrow the Capitol uh, and, and thwart democracy. Uh, but no, it just emboldened them, uh, even, even to this day. The truly shocking thing, too, I thought, um, in the midst of the whole thing was shocking, obviously, that they continued to support him after that, but was that there were men stalking Mike Pence inside the Capitol, chanting, hang Mike Pence. I know. A lot of the, you know, the leading figures of the religious right have been friends with Mike Pence far longer than they've known Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, has there been a more loyal foot soldier for the religious right than Mike Pence? Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, well, we uh, again, uh, we have lived through this bizarro world. I think we continue to live through it. As we have said, uh, Trump may not be in the White House anymore, but Trumpism is here to stay for a while. And uh, we continue to have to combat it and to uh, fight it and and make certain that it is not successful uh, in this democracy. Well, we ask one final question to all of our guests, and you have been a delight. Thank you so much for spending so much time with us. But our motto or our tagline at Good Faith Media is, there is more to tell. So, Sarah, what is your more to tell? (laughs) my more to tell i think is uh finding out more about the role of religion in the insurrection i think we've just started to scratch the surface of what happened there and how uh people were either motivated by their uh perception of their own faith or were energized by um faith leaders or, or by Christian nationalist leaders um, to engage in, if not the events of January 6th, events leading up to January 6th. I think this is an important part of the story that has not gotten the attention that it deserves because obviously we've been focused a great deal on a 
criminals being apprehended. And I think B, you know, the role of militias and survivalists and so on, and, you know, armed white supremacist groups. Um, but this is a really important part of the story of January 6th. So what I just heard is coming in 2022, Unholy Steps to the Capitol uh, by Sarah Posner, right? Third we'll book. <laughs> uh, well, Sarah is the author of Unholy Why White Evangelicals Worship at the Altar of Donald Trump. It is in bookstores now. Make certain to buy your copy today. Sarah, it's been a delight. Thank you for joining us at Good Faith Weekly. Thank you so much for having me. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us uh, on this episode. Until next time, keep living good faith.